Welcome back to the Sports Lawyers Association podcast. Whether you work for a team on the field, the ice, a court track, or a diamond, our association gives you an opportunity to grow. You're listening to episode number 11. Three friends and sports lawyers discuss Zion with Darren Heitner, Daniel Wallach, and Warren Zola. Sit back and enjoy this episode of the Sports Lawyers Association podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a conversation among three friends. All of us are sports lawyers. Uh, My name is Warren Zola, and I'm joined by Darren Heitner and Daniel Wallach. Uh, Dan and Darren, thanks for for taking some time today to uh, to talk about a timely subject, which is the excitement that is Zion Williamson, um, Duke, the analysis of what's happening legally, agents, the UAAA, lots to talk about. So so we're going to get into this. But again, uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Warren. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Great to be here. Warren, if I didn't know better, I think you're like a professional radio guy. So uh, I think you're the perfect uh, host of this, and I'm looking forward to talking about it. So, so, so Dan, if um, following your, your, your Twitter feed today is any example, you've been on the radio for the past, I don't know, 10 hours talking about this. You're, you're knee deep into the law. You've read the cases. You've read the filings. Uh, why don't you give us an update to start with? on where we are today, here, middle of May, we're all sitting on our couches, but we're reading voraciously about the potential rookie of the year and what has happened to him over the past, you know, 18 months. Wow, it's kind of going to be difficult to encapsulate a year worth of activity, but uh, to a lot of people who are just following the story beginning yesterday and today, Uh, they would think that it's a new controversy. But it actually has its genesis in a series of uh, commercial litigations that have been pending for more than a year. Um, Originally, when Zion Williamson declared for the NBA draft, um, he signed an exclusive marketing agreement with uh, a marketing agent by the name of Gina Ford, who is the principal of Prime uh, Sports Marketing. Uh, She had worked with Usain Bolt in the past, and um, was starting to get a little bit of a, you know, she, she started to become a little bit more known in, in basketball circles, but she wasn't what I would consider a big time agent. And I was somewhat surprised um, the more I learned about this case that she turned out to be his agent. And uh, I read about in, in early May, uh, a lawsuit was filed by, by Zion Williamson. And that May of this year, May of last year, uh, he had signed an exclusive marketing agreement with Gina Ford and Prime Sports for her to be her exclusive, his exclusive marketing agent. And what made this contract so unusual was that it contained a, um, what I would consider a a, a, a non-terminable exclusive marketing agreement, meaning it could not be terminated uh, by Zion Williamson. It ran in perpetuity. And this is one of the most marketable athletes ever to come out of, you know, college sports. So it, it struck me as somewhat surprising. Uh, so we read about him filing this lawsuit to uh, overturn or to have it declared invalid on technical grounds. And those technical grounds were a or was a or is a, a state statute known as the Uniform Athlete Agents Act, the UAAA, which is recognized in a number of states. North Carolina is one of them. And his theory was that the uh, contract was uh, enacted in violation of this law that was designed to protect student athletes from unscrupulous uh, agents. And he claims or argues in his lawsuit that the contract is invalid because he was a student athlete 
when he signed the deal with her and she had not yet registered as an agent with the North Carolina Secretary of State. So he was trying to get out of the deal uh, on grounds that were almost like an unconscionability argument. Uh, but here there was a state statute that was enacted for the protection of student athletes that he was hanging his hook on, hanging his hat on legally. So she in turn didn't want to be availed or be subject to North Carolina law, but she had a breach of contract claim. So rather than bring a counterclaim in the North Carolina federal court action, she filed a breach of contract and a, a tortious interference claim against CAA, his new agents, in Miami-Dade County Circuit Court. And the motivation for that was to avoid the, uh, uh, the in invocation of the Uniform uh, Athlete Agents Act, which was this North Carolina law. In Florida, it wouldn't apply so easily. And she cited the choice of law provision in their marketing agreement and on that basis filed suit in Florida. And things went along very swimmingly. I know we could go for an hour just describing the background of the case, but it was pretty much a non-eventful litigation until three weeks ago when a third person filed a lawsuit against Gina Ford in Miami, claiming that he was the sort of the broker who brought the two parties together and was entitled to a 5% finder's fee based upon an oral agreement that Gina Ford had entered into with him. But what was really explosive about that lawsuit filed in early April was that the runner or the, the broker claimed that a meeting had occurred between the Williamson, Williamson's mom's stepfather and Gina Ford back in January of 2019 when he was still a student athlete several months before he declared for the uh, NBA draft. So that pleading might have just uh, inadvertently pleaded into a UAAA violation under North Carolina law. So that, that kind of set the stage for the recent events. So, so before we get to the recent events, um, <laughs> we could go for a long time. Yeah, no, no, and, and background. We may and, want to. <laughs> and, I, and I'm having flashbacks of um, my one L year thinking about both civil procedure and, and torts. But Darren, you know, let's let's take a step back and think about what what's going on here. We have one of the most marketable college basketball players to come out in in quite some time, and he's looking to make as much money as he can as a professional once he leaves college athletics. And according to what's happened, he's looking for representation. And he's going both for marketing before he finds himself an agent. So he's looking for someone to work on the endorsement side, which is not uncommon to have two separate people, uh, one person doing marketing endorsements, another person to, to represent you as your agent. Um, but, but we sort of have this, this UAAA that, that Dan's talked about which was intended to protect college athletes and institutions. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? And sort of, you, you got your start, for those of us who remember years ago from, from Florida, the sports agent block. So you've been covering the agent world for well over a decade. You know it well. You've got a lot of friends who work there. So tell me a little bit from, from both the college athletic side, but also from the agent side, you know, what your perspective is on this particular situation. Well, first of all, and thanks for having me on. Great question, Warren. There's the distinction between the marketing agent and the team contract agent. And as you pointed out correctly, at first, Zion Williamson and his family were much more interested in figuring out who would be the marketing agent. And there's a very good reason for that. It's because Zion Williamson was going to be the number one overall draft pick and his salary was going to be slotted. There was very little that a team contract agent would ever have to do for him. In fact, 
he could have gone through the draft without an agent whatsoever, and his draft position and compensation would have not been affected at all. In fact, without actually seeing the SPAC, the standard player agent contract between Zion and his agents at CAA, I would assume that the fee that he's paying them is either 0% or as close to 0% as possible. So the issue obviously was who will be the marketing agent. And my understanding is that he went through a variety of interviews, including that with Gina Ford, and ultimately decided that Gina Ford and her partners at Prime Sports were the best fit. And I'm sure that the connection with Usain Bolt and her affiliations with, in particular, the shoe and apparel brand Puma played a big role in that. And I am, I'm sure that she was flaunting all the different brand partnerships that she was able to procure and negotiate for Usain Bolt, amongst others. With regard to your question concerning the UAAA, that's the Uniform Athlete Agent Act, I think it's important to first go back a bit and understand what is the UAAA at its core. And it's a resolution. It's a federal resolution that was first created and then passed by the Uniform Law Commission, essentially telling the states, this is a piece of legislation we encourage you to adopt within your own borders. And over the years, different states passed various versions of the Uniform Athlete Agent Act, which is why, for instance, in Florida, it's considered the Florida Athlete Agent Act. In North Carolina, the North Carolina Athlete Agent Act, even though the title on the legislation may say Uniform Athlete Agent Act. That is because these states have used the UAAA as a template and then made changes here and there. I can tell you, for instance, one of the more proactive states in enforcing their athlete agent laws is the state of Texas. I have represented numerous agents who have received letters from the Secretary of State in the state of Texas for alleged violations of that particular act. And the nuance with that act is you don't actually even have to have college athlete eligibility remaining to have to be considered an athlete agent, a licensed athlete agent within the state of Texas's borders. They take the position that even after the athlete has exhausted his or her eligibility, you still need to be licensed in that state if you want to recruit and sign an athlete. And obviously, there are arguments to be made on both sides. But here in North Carolina, what we have is an issue with its Athlete Agent Act that has specific definitions for what is an athlete, what is an agent, what is an agency con contract, and what is contact. And I think what is very important in any analysis concerning whether or not there was a violation of North Carolina's Athlete Agent Act is if, in fact, there was this meeting that Dan talked about in January of 2018 with Zion Williamson's parents, then is that construed as indirect contact with Zion Williamson? I think a very colorable argument can be made that, yes, in fact, that would be the intention of the act. That would be the indirect contact that the UAAA drafters or the adopters of the North Carolina Athlete Agent Act intended. It's absolutely not direct contact with Zion Williams. I think we can all agree on that. So then we have to actually construe what is somewhat vague language because it does not specifically and explicitly set forth that communication with an athlete's family members would be considered indirect. That is where I think there will be a lot of back and forth as this case may progress. 
and which could end up precluding summary judgment. I know Dan believes, and, and I'm not against his theory, which is that the Zion Williamson would prevail in federal court in North Carolina based on the theory that the North Carolina Athlete Agent Act was violated. But to the extent that there's any material facts in dispute and that there's any issue as to whether or not communication with Zion Williamson's family would be construed as indirect contact, I could actually see this case going past the summary judgment level and potentially ending up in a trial. What's really interesting to me beyond this North Carolina Athlete Agent Act and UAAA issue is that we're also dealing, as Dan mentioned, with a battle of forms. And we're dealing with a case where Zion Williamson brought his claims in North Carolina federal court, Gina Ford and her company brought their claims in Florida state court. And I believe, as Dan mentioned, Zion was first to file in North Carolina. I personally believe that this could have all been avoided, this being this public debate that fortunately we can all now engage in, if there was an arbitration clause in the contract. And it would have been quicker, it would have been cheaper, it would have been confidential. Now, we could have still had Zion Williamson file a, a uh, complaint in federal court, but courts in general, are, are much more willing to have a case proceed in arbitration if there's an arbitration clause in the contract. We've seen that, that in numerous occasions, particularly in the realm of sports. And, more, and, and when you're dealing with an issue between agent and player uh, within the player associations, there's mandatory arbitration. Here, because it's a marketing agent outside of any player association, there was not a requirement for there to be arbitration, which has, uh, I guess, provided the blessing for Dan Wallach, which is a day full of radio appearances. Yeah, un unpaid radio interviews, Darren. Uh, you know, if I if I if I keep up my current pace, I, I won't have to file an income tax return next year. Uh, I want to. Oh, so, so, Dan, wait one second. I know that you're chomping at the bit. And I'm going to I'm going to let you I'm going to let you respond and, and come back to this. But I want to I want to lay a couple of things out for those people who are listening. Right, number one, the UAAA was was drafted with the intent of protecting college athletes as quote amateurs and making sure that they were aware of their potential in giving up their college eligibility and their ability to play so that agents would have to go through an entire process, including certification or registration through a state. And there's about 40, 45 states that have passed this. Massachusetts is not one of them, but, but most states have passed it. So that's the, U, the, the UAAA. The other thing I'm gonna mention, I know we're gonna get into this later in this discussion, but I wanna be very clear about, about two things. We're talking about the law right now. Right? And, and this is really important. We're talking about state law, whether it's North Carolina or Florida, we're talking about state law. At some point, this conversation is going to bleed into the NCAA. And those are rules. Those are private association rules that people have decided to, to agree to abide by in terms of amateurism and no extra benefits and no agents for, for basketball players while they're eligible, et cetera. But these are not laws. These are rules. That being said, Dan, I know that you have a bunch that you'd like to respond to on Darren's statement, so, so let's get going. All right, well, NCAA rules will come up in hour number three of our, of our podcast, but I wanna, I wanna speak to the distinction between the Florida um, Athlete Agents Act and the North Carolina Athlete Agents Act, and most states, I think there are 40 states that have enacted this uniform law, so why does it matter 
where this lawsuit takes place. Um, couldn't you know, Zion Williamson uh, make the same legal argument in a Florida court? And the reason he's not filing here or, or wanting to litigate here is that the Florida Uniform Athlete Agents Act has a jurisdictional limitation. It only applies to students, uh, student athletes at Florida schools. So if this case were to be litigated in the state of Florida, he would lose that argument if a Florida court followed a contractual Florida choice of law provision. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be as impactful uh, if Florida law were to apply because he's not benefiting or wouldn't be able to avail himself of Florida's version of the same law. So that's why it was imperative uh, from Williamson's vantage point to jump the gun, so to speak, and file a declaratory judgment action first, to be the first one to file, uh, because if he had sat back and waited for Gina Ford to sue him, she would have been the first to file in state court in Florida. And you know, by, by this year, the Florida case may have uh, had much more traction. And this is a very important battle of the forums, uh, because for a while, it seemed like Florida would be the venue where this litigation would take place because nothing was happening in the North Carolina federal action and all the activity was taking place in the Miami-Dade County Circuit Court action. So what happened? What shifted the dynamic? Um, well, Zion Williamson filed a motion to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction in the Florida Miami-Dade Court uh, County action because he argued he's not a Florida resident, hasn't Travel to Florida, you know, limited exception. He has no, he doesn't have a sufficient nexus with the state of Florida. Uh, the court denied his motion to dismiss because he entered into a contract, a business relationship with a Florida citizen with a Florida choice of law clause. So the, the lower court disagreed, but he took an appeal of that ruling. And by virtue of appealing that ruling, at the time, the coronavirus, uh, you know, the, 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 the pause in, in the courts and social gathering, it basically brought the Florida lawsuit to a halt. Uh, the, the, the third district court of appeal, which is hearing his appeal, uh, is, moving, is moving at a very glacial pace. And by virtue of appealing that interlocutory order, he's pretty much foreclosed any possibility that that, that, that Miami lower court action can proceed against him. Even those notices that were filed last week, the, the notice of it, the, the first set of interrogatories and the request for admission that, that ask him to uh, admit certain things about improper payments, he's not even required to answer those. The, that case is stayed as to Zion Williamson so long as that third district court of appeal case is pending. Those filings do not start any clocks whatsoever. And uh, so the Florida case is on hold. And then in North Carolina, Gina Ford suffered a significant setback because she was trying to get his lawsuit dismissed on the basis that he's a, North, a South Carolina resident. He plays for Duke, but his permanent residency is in South Carolina and that the contract was entered into in South Carolina. So she was advancing a similar jurisdictional argument and the federal district court judge denied her motion to dismiss. But the difference between the two denials is that uh, a denial of a motion to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction is immediately appealable as an interlocutory uh, order, a non-final appealable order. But her 12B6 motion was not immediately appealable. She's got to wait until the end of the case. So based on a procedural, you know, sort of, not a, a, based on a jurisdictional quirk, 
the North Carolina case now advances and the Florida case is at a standstill, which is a, a big reason why the case, the dynamic to the litigation has changed so much because the venue is now going to be in a more favorable form uh, for Zion Williamson. And I do want to address some of the items that Darren raised, but you know, I, I don't want to make this a one hour lecture. So I'll I want to talk about those discovery requests. Yeah, let's I get may. to those in, in one second. I, I do want to mention, and, and let's, I'll, I'll turn to you in a second, Darren, to, to discuss those. But I mean, for those of you who are law students who are prepping for the bar and thinking about civil procedure, you know, sports Please, law seems to be rife. Pardon? Is this going to be on the bar exam? I, I, I think so. But for those of you who've been following sports law, right, forum shopping has been a big part of this industry and what's been happening. I mean, we can all remember Deflategate, right? And, you know, we, all of us have spent a share, more, more, more time than I want to remember talking about Deflategate. But, right, it was filed in New York because they wanted to rush to the court system. The NFL wanted to rush to the court system because they had consistently gotten beaten in Minnesota with Judge Doty, right? So, so forum shopping has been part of this. But, but Darren, let's, let's go talk. Let, let's return to, to your point um, in, in terms of the excitement of the, of the last uh, week or so. Right. I mean, I, I saw Daniel. Daniel was probably getting notification after notification yesterday I think what Bleacher Report initially picked up on it but the, the real news was were these discovery requests and it's really interesting because as a litigator typically you get a lot of news attention to your case when you file the complaint or when there's a judgment or a settlement that's not confidential I think this may be the first time that I've ever seen discovery requests be the premise for a lot of news coverage Trend, um, this is the first request for admission in history that has ever trended on Twitter. There you go. I mean, that, that's groundbreaking. So, <laughs> look, what's so interesting, one, as Dan pointed out, there's an appeal that has stayed the litigation in Florida, yet these discovery requests were still served. And thus, they have little to no significance whatsoever. But take it a step further. I mean, I've been practicing in South Florida for 10 years. I have never filed any discovery requests with the court. You serve them. In fact, if you file discovery requests in federal court, you get a notice within typically within 24 hours that you are not supposed to be filing discovery requests with the court. You file your discovery requests when they're attached to a motion to compel if the other party does not answer sufficiently those requests. Yet here, those requests were filed. And, and Dan found them. I don't know if anyone else would have filed them. I, mean, I think you found them about four or five days after they were actually filed. That's right. So I don't know whether this, this was an intention to get publicity or not, but the ramification obviously was this enhanced attention to this particular case and these cases as a whole by virtue of the fact that now you have the plaintiffs in the Florida case, that being Gina Ford, Prime Sports, etc., asking Zion Williamson merely to admit or deny whether the family received any sort of benefits from Duke, from Nike, from Adidas. Now, these aren't allegations. It's simply discovery requests asking for an admission or a denial. And as Dan pointed out, it's very unlikely that those will ever be objected to or answered in Florida. Maybe objected to, although it's probably not even necessary because the case is stated. So a motion to compel will have no significance. But 
those discovery requests may be refiled during the, or reserved during the discovery period in the North Carolina case. And what I think is interesting is there has been a discussion in the past 24 hours as to whether or not objections would be, uh, would prevail uh, on the part of Zion Williamson with regard to these specific requests. And a lot of people think, wow, this is so outside the bounds of what this case and controversy is all about. But I thought, what if, you know, could there be another side to this? Could there be a scenario, obviously Zion is going to object to it, but could there be a scenario where the court actually compels responses or in the case that they're not, that some, for some reason they're not answered through this discovery process, could Zion be questioned in a deposition about this? And would the judge require a response? And I think that the answer may be yes. Because if you go back to what we just talked about with the North Carolina Athlete Agent Act, and if in fact Zion Williamson is holding his hat on the fact that he was still a college athlete with eligibility to participate when this occurred, well, if you can then prove that either Zion or his family members received some sort of impermissible benefit prior to January 2018, then he actually would not have had any eligibility. And then it may have not been, I guess, a per se violation of the North Carolina Athlete Agent Act. Now, I understand that's a very difficult case to prove and the burden is quite high, but I, I don't take the position that these discovery requests are so immaterial and scandalous that a judge will absolutely agree that an objection must stand and that Zion does not have to answer the questions. What I think is really interesting about, about those requests though, and we've, we touched upon this briefly, and I think we should come back to it, whether it's now or just in a little bit, is there's a difference between Zion sitting down and asking for benefits or having these meetings or his, his mother and stepfather doing it and whether he had knowledge of those meetings or not. There's no doubt that Zion has a team of people who are helping him prepare to turn pro. That includes interviews, that includes due diligence. There is no NCAA rule that prohibits these discussions. There are, there are all sorts of rules that prohibit promising to sign with somebody in the future or accepting impermissible benefits under the NCAA rules. But having conversations is okay. So now the question is, to what extent did those conversations happen? And did Zion authorize this? Was he aware of it? We've seen examples throughout college sports where relatives and friends and girlfriends of potential pro athletes have had their hand out without that athlete even knowing about it. So, you know, I, th there's some issues here that are going on that are beyond just, um, you know, was there a meeting? But, but Dan, what are your thoughts on all of this? Well, I want to, I want to get back to a, a couple of things. Darren hit upon a, a very important uh, legal issue that some judge will be faced with down the road, whether it's mm -hmm. Florida or North Carolina, which is ruling on the uh, discoverability of an inquiry into whether Duke played uh, or pay, paid a member of Zion Williamson's family or, or, or Zion Williamson directly, and whether uh, whether that whether how that impacts his eligibility somehow uh, you know can be relevant to uh, Gina Ford's assertion that he was never eligible as a student athlete because uh, it, it, it was poisoned from the moment 
he entered Duke because he had accepted money. Uh, I don't think a judge, you know, I, you know, Darren and I disagree on this, but I believe you have to look at state of mind in April 2019. You can't, 10 years from now, discover that, yeah, maybe he accepted money back in 2018, so the court will basically enter into a time machine and go back and basically take his entire college career and change the nature of it. I think you have to look at what the parties uh, knew and, and what their state of mind was and what the actual state of affairs were at the time they entered into the contractual relationship. And she had no reason to think that he lacked eligibility. He, was, he, he participated in Duke's games that season. On April 20th, 2019, he was, right on the moment before he declared for the NBA draft, uh, he was a student athlete. There's no question about that. And, and by the way, that raises a separate issue. This pronouncement that he's entering the NBA draft is not the dividing line between student athlete and professional player. You actually have to submit paperwork to the NBA. And I wonder at what point in the continuum or in the timeline, he actually followed through and submitted the, tape, the paperwork. Because if he made the announcement, signs a contract with Gina, and then a week later submits the paperwork, well, that might be relevant. And there's also the notion of the new NCAA testing the water rule, testing the waters rule, which uh, was promulgated last year, that despite declaring for the NBA draft, you had up until May 29th to withdraw from the draft and retain your eligibility as a student athlete, provided you met one single solitary con condition, which was to seek an evaluation on your NBA draft status. Uh, and I doubt that Zion Williamson has the presumptive number one overall pick in the NBA draft in 2019 would have needed an evaluation. However, that's a fact that we don't know, and that could play into the analysis as to whether he's a student athlete or, for, or, or waive those rights by, by declaring for the NBA draft. But I take a very different view as to admissibility here because the, relevant, the, the test for discoverability is one, whether it's relevant or reasonably calculated to lead to the discovery of admissible evidence. And I question whether the validity of a contract in 2019 is going to turn on anything uh, that may or may not have happened between other parties in 2018. It's a creative argument. Uh, but to, 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 but again, to, to play devil's advocate here, uh, in a deposition setting, a witness cannot refuse to answer a question on any other basis other than that it would violate the attorney-client privilege or a confidentiality stipulation. So he may have to answer that question in a deposition setting, but you better believe that his legal counsel will, one, object, 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 and try to get a pre-deposition ruling from the federal court judge, and as a backup, have a confidentiality stipulation in place to prevent the release of this material. But you know, you can never guarantee uh, that that material remains confidential in perpetuity. Maybe you can for the balance of the lawsuit, but there are some protections that can be implemented here. But certainly uh, there's going to be an open question as to whether this is even relevant. Well, and, and I'm gonna turn to Darren for this one, but I, I think what's interesting is what's becoming more and more important is at what exact instant does the UAA govern in North Carolina? And at what instance does it no longer govern? And to what extent does, does Zion Williamson becoming a pro, meaning he is at this exact second, his NCAA eligibility has been permanently extinguished. Now, my understanding is that any agreement 
to sign, regardless of whether he has signed with an agent, if he promises Gina Ford in January or before that, that he will sign with her or he's spoken to an agent, regardless of whether he's filled out paperwork for the draft in his evaluation, which is an entirely different scenario because once you're gone, you're gone, but you could lose your eligibility regardless of whether you enter the draft if you agree to join to sign with an agent or actually sign with him. So Darren, talk to me a little bit about where the UAA blanket would cover him and his role of NCAA eligibility would, would play in that. So again, for the vast majority of states, it would be, uh, it would be relevant up until the college athlete sheds his or her eligibility to participate in intercollegiate athletics. And in fact, there's, there is a, an important set of, words that need to be included in any contract with an individual who still has eligibility and will be relinquishing his or her eligibility. And that's found near the tail end of pretty much every athlete agent act, which was incorporated from the original uniform athlete agent act. And that's this warning to student athletes. It needs to be in bold face, in all caps, and must be included in these contracts. Now, failure to include it in the contract could also impute liability for the athlete agent from a civil standpoint it gives the right to uh, an academic institution to file a civil lawsuit for relief it also allows uh, the government of the state to impose a fine i believe in north carolina it's a fine up to twenty-five thousand dollars for a violation it most likely would not impute any sort of criminal liability i believe that's only if an individual provides some sort of impermissible benefits as opposed to not being licensed or not including this required language. Um, But to answer your question, these statutes typically govern as long as an individual has college athlete, student athlete eligibility. So it would govern prior to enrolling at a university and then through the course of the individual uh, participating at the university at the college level. Obviously, again, once there is, once the paperwork is signed with, let's say, the NBA draft and you sign a contract with an agent because there are those testing the water opportunities, as Dan mentioned, and it varies uh, sport by sport, at that point in time, once it is shed, that college athlete eligibility, these acts would no longer control. You know, one thing I wanted to point out, though, what was discussed earlier, there was a bit of a discussion about whether the act of the parent can be deemed an act of the athlete. And what's interesting is this may be an issue of first impression in a court of law, but it's actually not an issue of first impression with regard to college sports. You can go back to Cam Newton when his father was shopping around Cam to different universities in exchange for payment of money, I believe including Mississippi State University, but a better example is actually Reggie Bush. And in Reggie Bush, the University of Southern California, I believe it was uh, Pat Hayden at the time, as the athletic director, was told that the parent is basically the same as the athlete. We treat them one and the same. And remember, University of Southern California received heavy sanctions for the benefits that were in part received by Reggie Bush's parents. The distinction does need to be made, though. I know we've made this already quite a few times, but oftentimes the general public does not necessarily easily make that distinction, which is that there's a difference between what the NCAA may do 
and what a university may do with regard to self-imposed discipline, that being Duke in this situation, and what a state like North Carolina would do. Now, the interesting thing, another interesting component of this litigation is, whereas I mentioned Texas is uh, very uh, much uh, enforcing its athlete agent law, that's similar with North Carolina. There have been instances where agents have been reprimanded, fined, and suffered penalties for violation of the act. So this may not, this may not only play out in these civil cases. We could see involvement from the government within North Carolina. We could see the NCAA uh, do some sort of notice of allegations with regard to Duke. Um, this could be a slippery slope that starts with these this civil litigation and then ends up becoming a much larger affair and uh we can all blame dan for that. So, <laughs> so so dan obviously you're, you're you're next but one thing i do want to mention and obviously there's been a lot of talk about it and as of now there has been no proof that there has been any wrongdoing on behalf of duke university this is a university that has done an internal investigation They've evaluated, they're comfortable with what has happened and transpired on their campus, and that Zion Williamson was an appropriately eligible college athlete who played for them, went to school for them, and left in good standing from that university. So let's be clear about that. So far, that's, that's the, the standard. But, but Dan, you know, we've been talking for, for some time today. We, we spent a bunch of time going through the history. What are the next steps that are going to happen in this, this case, this litigation, or is all of this, all of this just posturing for a settlement? Is that where we're headed? Well, it, 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 they're not mutually exclusive. You could have both. Uh, you know, Gina Forward filed her answer in uh, North Carolina federal court on Friday night where she interposed a 100-page counterclaim. But the filing of the answer closes the pleadings, and now the parties move forward with, um, you know, their, their scheduling conference, which will in turn uh, lead to a scheduling order by the court and depositions and other discovery that would likely uh, start to commence uh, by the middle to maybe beginning in July. So we're in a we're in a kind of a I wouldn't say a holding pattern, but the next phase of the case is for the parties to meet and confer, to agree on a discovery schedule, and for the court to so order it. And then once the court so orders the the schedule with discovery cutoff dates, experts, who knows, Warren, maybe you're going to be called in as an expert on the UAA, you know, so, you know, it's possible that there could be a battle of the experts, expert depositions, uh, written discovery, and this is where Gina can reserve her, uh, her request for admission and her sets of interrogatories. She won't be able to court file them. Uh, but she can serve them, and we're likely to enter into a, uh, if this case does not settle, uh, the discovery phase of this case would likely last in the neighborhood of six months, probably taking us to the balance of calendar 2020, which would then follow be followed by uh, presumably summary judgment motions, and with a trial date to be established at some point in you know mid-2021. But I, I want to get back to the issue of contact under the UAAA, the statute forbids to have forbids a, a, an agent to have direct or indirect contact with the student athlete uh, prior to the time that the agent has registered with the Secretary of State. I want to speak about the role that uh, Zion's uh, mo mother and stepfather played on his behalf. They were not just ordinary parents that you know showed up to cheerlead at the games and support their son as a, as a booster 
they played an integral role in all of his decision making as to which college to attend and which advisors to sign with. And uh, we, I don't know that to be true because I'm making it up, but that's what Gina Ford alleges in her, in her complaint in Miami. That's what she alleges in her answer and counterclaim filed in North Carolina federal court that uh, the mom and the stepfather played a lead role in vetting and meeting with agents and making and helping the son make those business decisions. So based on her own allegations, I would submit that indirect contact with Zion Williamson uh, would occur by having direct contact with mom and dad who are basically uh, vetting agents. And the word indirect means somebody other than the principal. Uh, you can't get closer to the principal uh, than, the, than, than mom and dad unless there's a wife. So that's really within the concentric circle of what I would consider to be indirect contact. This is not the clerk at the 7-Eleven store. This isn't Zion's friend from Louisiana. It's not his teammate on Duke. This is mom and dad who played a lead role in selecting uh, Gina Ford. So I don't subscribe to the notion that it is a fact issue. Certainly everything is a fact issue as to whether a certain state of affairs occurred, but based on Gina's own pleading, I don't think it would rise to the level of being what, a, what, what the courts refer to as a genuine issue of material disputed fact. And I believe that this is almost a fact that could be stipulated to. So, so, so Darren, what happens though moving forward in the sense of, let's pretend that a lot of this a lot of these filings is entirely based on let's get into a room and figure out how much money Zion needs to pay Gina Ford and her agency to make the rest of this go away. So one question is, is do you think that that's where we're headed? And number two, let's assume that we reach, they reach a settlement at some point. Does North Carolina still have interest or, or do you think they would still move forward with going after Gina Ford for filing the UAAA? Good questions. Um, first of all, I think that this is going to be an incredibly difficult case to resolve. It's not simply Gina Ford v. Zion and vice versa. You also have Creative Artists Agency involved, as, as uh, Dan mentioned earlier. And I think one of the more difficult parts of this is, one, you can look at the filings, and Dan's done this hundreds of pages, and the lawyers have spent an exorbitant amount of money already on this case. So they're pot committed on both sides. Two, you have the issue where there is an exorbitant amount of damages that is being claimed. And so unless the parties are going to be realistic as to what those damages may be, and at a settlement conference or at a mediation, come to grips with the fact that they're going to have to take a major haircut in order for this thing to be resolved, I don't see this getting resolved prior to an order on a motion for summary judgment. And in fact, because of what Dan mentioned, and I, I don't discredit him whatsoever, I think he's absolutely correct. I believe Zion's camp believes that they are in a position where they have a slam dunk case. And I don't think that they have the incentive at this point to throw any considerable amount of money on the table to make it go away. I think that Zion slash CAA would probably pay the amount that they believe they will spend between now and fully briefing a motion for summary judgment and not a dollar more. Yeah. Because I think they'll, they're of the position, let's at least play this out until there is a ruling on a motion for summary judgment. 
if it is not granted, at that point in time, let's be more realistic about what the further cost will be all the way through trial and most likely appeals, um, and whether or not this is something that can be resolved. But at the same time, it always takes two to tango. So it's going to require Gina Ford and Prime Sports to be realistic in what their demand is. And part of the issue with all of this, Dan mentioned it earlier, and I don't recall the specifics of the contract, but apparently it was a deal with a term that lasts in perpetuity. And there's an issue itself. Yeah. Right? I mean, it sounds like it's an illusory, unconscionable contract, if that's true. Um, but how do you then you know, will a court blue line that and come to a reasonable term? Can the court do that? If not, um, or, or if so, if so, does Gina Ford and Prime Sports, are they entitled to every, to a commission on every cent and every dollar that Zion Williamson receives, even though they had no uh, role in the procurement or negotiation of those deals? Obviously, they're going to take the position that they were precluded from being involved because it was terminated. And so the answer is yes, but there's a huge challenge there. Obviously a court isn't going to award any damages for deals that have not yet been consummated or for monies that have not yet been received. You can't commission that. So there's a lot of issues that, that remain. I, I am firmly of the position that this does not resolve for if it, if it does get resolved prior to, to the order on motion for summary judgment, it only gets resolved for an amount under what Zion slash CAA would be paying in with regard to their own legal fees. So Dan, I'm going to come to you, but, but a couple of comments, right? Number one, our, our good friend and fellow sports lawyer, Andrew uh, Brandt is always correct when he says there will be lawyers. Number two, the good news is those of us who teach sports law are going to be talking about this case for a while because there's a lot going on. And number three, the good news for basketball fans is no matter how this thing plays out, when the NBA is back, Zion Williamson will be on the court. So let's sort of all of this is a financial analysis of what's going to happen to him in these contract terms. Uh, and the other thing I just want to mention before I turn to Dan is the way agents typically work when they negotiate a contract. And, but they also can be fired at any particular time. So if, if person A, if agent A represents someone and they negotiate a three-year contract with Nike for $10 million a year and they get fired, that agent is paid their share of any contract they negotiated, but gets nothing for any future contracts that, that, that come their way. This, this permanent contract with Gina Ford clearly is a unique one and something the court, as Darren pointed out, I think is going to take a look at. Dan, you're up. Yeah, I mean, while we don't have any sports for the time being, we do have sports law. That, that you know, goes on, you know. Dan, I think you've gone mute for us for a second. Blue lining an unconscionable agreement. Uh, I don't believe the court would have the authority to alter the terms of a contract it found to be unconscionable. Now, we have both procedural unconscionability as a possibility as, and substantive unconscionability, and you need to establish both. So, you know, Gina was going to, is going, oh, I'm sorry, Zion Williamson is going to advance two different arguments here. One, that the, uh, that, that the contract violates the North Carolina Athlete Agents Act, and alternatively is both procedurally and substantively unconscionable. Uh, he's 18 years old, no lawyer, 
uh, potentially in violation of the North Carolina Act, and of course, substantively unconscionable because it's a lifetime contract. And the reason you don't see agents suing each other every time um, a player jumps ship is that they don't have lifetime contracts that they're hanging over their head. These are contracts that if they're breached or violated, the agent is due you know, the money he's earned on, on deals he's negotiated. She's looking to have a piece of Zion Williamson until he's playing in a senior rec league when he's 65 years old. And what complicates the, the possibility of structuring a settlement here is that the public nature of her discovery requests has basically made her or could make her persona non grata for uh, prospective NBA players. She may have uh, sabotaged her own career prospects because now she's the lawyer that turns around and sues clients, signs them to lifetime deals, and is somebody to be avoided at all costs. So she's basically pushed all of her chips to the middle of the table on this one case. She doesn't have a stable of NBA superstars to fall back on and uh, you know make up the difference in what she's losing. She's going to need a major payday in this case because uh, I think her days as a prominent NBA marketing agent are probably at or near an end unless she does some major rehabilitation or all these accusations about her turn out to be false. So I think the number at which a settlement is struck is not just simply legal fees or a million or $2 million. I think from her vantage point, she's got four sets of lawyers working for her in North Carolina. It, it brings to mind Andrew's comment, there will be lawyers. On her side, there are many of them. On Zion's side, there are many of them. And I believe that any, nothing short of eight figures gets this done, which makes it very complicated. Yeah, I mean, it's it's remarkable to think about about sort of how this has unfolded over the past 18 months, right? We have a 18-year-old basketball player who clearly um, is an elite player. But, but let's remember, when he came to Duke, he may have had the most social followers, but he was the third best basketball player, according to the rankings, coming in with, with that, that class that year. And here we are today talking about potentially eight figures on a marketing deal gone wrong for him. Uh, People have been listening to this and watching this for an hour. We appreciate you taking the time to, to listen to Darren and Daniel. Um, as we talk about Zion Williamson, I don't want to belabor this too long, but, but Darren, what, what are the things that we should be looking at in the future as we pay attention to this case? What are the things that, that you're most sort of interested in um, and, and something that the average person should be looking forward to, to following both, both Darren and Dan on Twitter as you guys say, well, look what happened today. Well, I am most interested in seeing how this plays out from the perspective of using the North Carolina Athlete Agency Act as a tool to void a contract. Uh, we've seen, I've actually seen, there is precedent out there in other jurisdictions for players to not have to pay fees to agents who are not properly licensed within those jurisdictions. And I'm sure that Zion's counsel has done the requisite research on that already. I'm not positive that there's anything within the specific district in which uh, North Carolina sits, but I think that's really what the most interesting thing will be. And look, I, overall, it's, it's, it's crazy to think, if you take a step back, we're to, as Dan just mentioned, an eight-figure case, and that it will probably take eight figures to resolve this matter. And it all probably could have been avoided if the agent would have merely paid the fee in North Carolina before having any contact, 
had a background check, submitted the fingerprints, and become licensed. And it's an annoying process to do that state by state. There is no submission where you submit one application and you're approved in the 40 plus states and adopted a form of the UAAA. But agents do it all the time. And what could happen here is that the ignorance of an agent results in essentially an eight-figure loss. I think that'll be extremely interesting. Oh, I have a, I have a, the op, I'm looking at it from the opposite lens, and I agree with what Darren just said, but I look to the, I look to Zion Williamson and his family for not having the foresight to have a legal advisor. Uh, a legal advisor could have um, subverted this potential issue for the Williamson family because no lawyer, competent or incompetent, representing a player with the marketing might of Zion Williamson would ever allow his client, I mean, obviously the, the client has choice here, but, but no lawyer would recommend that a client with that kind of earning potential sign what is in essence a lifetime deal. And had the parents uh, recognized their limitations in terms of business savvy and business experience and just hired someone like Darren or Daniel Wallach or Warren or any uh, North Carolina lawyer to look over the contract, I think we might be looking at a different set of circumstances on you know, May 11th, 2020, that this never would have come to pass, spending $1,000 or $3,000 on a lawyer to look over the contract might have saved uh, the Williamson family a whole lot of heartache and a lot of money going forward. And, and the same thing with CAA. So I kind of put this one a little bit on the parents who took such a dominant role. And I don't know for a fact that they didn't retain counsel. Uh, but one thing that this uh, marketing agreement lacks is uh, an express provision acknowledging that the agreement has been reviewed by counsel. And where both sides in an arm's length transaction are parties to a, 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 an agreement uh, and are rep represented by counsel, there usually is a provision in the contract to acknowledge that fact to prevent one of the parties later on from saying, I didn't know what I was signing. I didn't know what this term meant. Uh, I wasn't sure what this meant. Well, if you have a lawyer representing you, uh, and certainly if I was uh, doing business with someone on the other side of the deal, I would want the protection of language like that, which really begs the question, did Gina Ford really want Zion Williamson to have an attorney look this over. And I think to ask that question is to answer it because she knows that if she had insisted on him having legal counsel look this over, uh, he never would have signed the deal. Of course, I'm just speculating, uh, but that seems like a pretty reasonable inference to draw. Uh, but certainly this case will spawn more law review articles than you can imagine. I don't think there'll be an NBA player of recent vintage who generates more law review commentaries and articles than Zion Williamson. I think, I think he pretty much to this point uh, has the lead on, on, on that projection. So, uh, you know, and the other thing I should, I should mention, if we're talking about, about an agent here, we're talking about marketing agent, that is not governed by the National Basketball Players Association, right? If this was a player rep agent, then we would have a union involved who would be keeping an eye on the agent and protecting the player, but that's not the case. Um, so, Let's wrap this up. I think that Darren and Dan have given us a lot of things to think about as we think about Zion and lawsuits and jurisdiction and torts and contracts and agents and ways that players enter professional athletics. Um, this, is, this is podcast and video number one. 
And stay tuned because as Dan and Darren have both mentioned, there's no doubt that we've got more to follow in the coming months as we continue to hang out and, uh, and watch and wait for any sports to happen. So stay safe, stay healthy, and thanks for joining us today, everybody. Thanks for tuning in today. Feel free to share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Sports Lawyers or find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. And be sure to be on the lookout for more podcasts.